1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Welcome to Censored. I'm Eva Vernach, a historian who has converted my distracting reading habit into a podcast. There are now lots of ways to support the show, check out the links in the episode notes for how to buy fancy stickers, or subscribe to Patreon. This episode is the first celebrity memoir I've read for the podcast. It's by Errol Flynn, star of 1930s adventure films like Robin Hood and Captain Blood. I say it's by Errol Flynn, but it was ghost written, so it's more about Errol than by Errol. He did have the bare arse cheek to call it my wicked wicked ways though. It's a great title, you got to admit. By the time it was published in December 1959, Errol Flynn himself was dead. His poor liver and heart had finally given up the ghost in October 59 after years of drink and drugs. Flynn had narrated his memoir to Conrad Earl in 1958, fully aware that he was physically declining. He told his story of how an Australian boy became one of the most beautiful faces in Hollywood. It's a real rags-to-riches story enlivened by gossipy tales of parties and famous people. It was so scandalous that the publisher of the paperback edition insisted potentially libelous bits be cut out. So the edition I'm reading is an unexpurgated one that was not widely available at the time. When the censors banned this in October 1960, they were probably censoring an already censored edition. It was still too rude for Irish people though. As for a drink to go with the book, I am once again facing the quandary of drinking alcohol while discussing alcoholism. Flynn died when he was just 50, from the combined effects of booze and drugs. There's a cocktail named after him called the Errol, equal parts gin, cointreau and freshly squeezed lemon juice to which you add a teaspoon of white rum, shake with ice and serve in martini glasses. You might feel very suave halfway through the first one, but you'd be legless by the third. I'm not so sure this recipe can be attributed to Flynn, because he much preferred vodka to gin. On page 18 of his memoir, he wrote this. Years before, I had begun drinking steadily daily, about a fifth of vodka a day, maybe more. Now I extended and deepened this recreation. Why didn't I tire of it? Why did most other things pall on me, but vodka never? Christ, a fifth of vodka is 750 milliliters, a standard size bottle. So he was drinking a whole bottle and sometimes more a day for most of his life until he drank even more again in his later years. Towards the end of his life, he carried a kit designed to look like a medicine box that was actually a portable bar with vodka, quinine water and glasses in it. When he was filming on set, he had concealed his drinking by injecting oranges with vodka. So it has to be vodka really, it was both his crotch and his killer. How he managed to be in like Flynn on a bottle of vodka a day is anyone's guess. And truth be told, I do need a drink to get through this mental memoir. I used to fancy Errol in his tights in Robin Hood, But this book shows that getting to know a film star crush is a very, very bad idea. Quick content warning, I will be talking about sexual violence and racism a lot. So, why was it banned? This was a lot harder to answer than I had expected. At first, I thought it was simply because his reputation as a rake was so well known by 1959 that the censors would ban it outright. They wouldn't even have to pretend to read it. When you go look at his biography, it reveals just the sort of life that would cause conniptions and moral conservatives. He was mad, bad and dangerous to know, especially if you were a teenage girl. In 1943, he was put on trial for raping two underage girls. This was accompanied by a storm of publicity at the time. Unfortunately, you won't be surprised to learn that he was not convicted because his lawyer successfully trashed the girl's sexual morality. Surely, I thought, since Errol was extremely famous, this was also big news in Ireland. But of course, I forgot. Wartime censorship of the press kept that news story right out of circulation. It's quite possible this public part of Flynn's life never entered the cultural consciousness in Ireland until quite late. So I turned to the book proper and read it with serious intent. Perhaps I thought it was the line on page 13 when Errol tells his mate to grab Maureen O'Hara's tits. Possibly, though Maureen decks the bloke and her image as a feisty but virtuous Irish redhead is pretty secure by the end of the story. If we were to look for sexual encounters, Flynn's memoir is chock full of them. They're all coyly described though, the overall tone of the narrative is best described as wink wink, nudge nudge, with a side order of unconvincing feigned innocence. This is his first sexual encounter as a teenage boy of 12 or 13, described on page 35. My first affair was with a girl from Burnie who worked for Mother. She was a plump, blonde girl, not handsome, but available. One night when Mother and Father were out, Carrie was seated in the living room, reading. I hovered around her chair. I started to make a reconnaissance of her leg. She kept on reading, as if I were doing nothing. The reconnaissance went higher, this going on for some time, till suddenly she blurted out, How much do I owe you? One shilling and ninepence, I said. She would borrow six or ninepence here and there. Come on, she said, leading the way to the bedroom. I followed, a little thunderstruck at my success. From then on, I fumbled. I, of course, had absolutely no experience how to go about these matters. But I caught the hang of it. Oh, Carrie, I exclaimed. Suddenly she bounced into the air. You damn little fool, you want me to have a baby? That cancelled the one shilling and ninepence debt. There were no encores. She managed to keep out of my debt. Yikes, seems to be a fully blown creep at 13. Getting sex from a girl who's financially indebted to him. Ugh. I think this would probably have been enough to get a band, but there's more, so much more sex in this memoir. Tedious amounts of bragging about sexual conquests is the defining feature of Flynn's authorial personality. But that's also obscured because it's in the middle of all this travel and confusion and adventurous scrapes, he describes. If his account is to be believed, his parents effectively abandoned him to his own devices when he was about 14. Thereafter, there are unsuccessful stints at boarding schools, running away, changing continents, It's bewildering and hard to believe that a boy so young could get away with this kind of thing. Where it gets mind-bogglingly crazy is when at 17 Flynn heads to Papua New Guinea to get rich in a gold rush. He talks his way into a government job and becomes a colonist in the Australian project to extract as much value as possible from the people and land of Papua New Guinea. Part of Flynn's job involved putting down violent protests from tribes who were angry when white men in search of gold looted or pillaged whatever they liked. So he describes heading off into the jungle with policemen he described as, believe it or not, boys, to capture the baddies, as he saw it. The men he captured were hanged, an undertaking he presided over. Flynn then described the inexplicable to him reactions of the local people watching the hangings and portraying them as devoid of human feeling or sympathy. Perfect savages in fact. I found all this colonial justification stuff incredibly difficult to read in part because I had signed up for showbiz gossip not horrific exploitative violence. Then it got worse when he described a village sacked in intra tribal warfare. He spoke about children decapitated and pregnant women impaled on stakes. I mean, it's so extremely violent that I almost suspect him of making it up, just so that I'd fully agree with him that these people are from the Stone Age. Yes, he actually says they're Stone Age people. Anyway, just when you think this appalling colonial horror show couldn't get any worse... Flynn finds a survivor of the massacre, a girl hidden in the bushes. Now hold on to your stomachs because I'm about to read out his description of her from page 70. Her face lit up and I realised I was staring at a honey-coloured girl of exceeding femininity. She had a perfect figure and the most glorious pair of breasts you ever saw, the classic ski jump type, a lovely little hollow and then the line goes way up into the air and doesn't dip. She was bushy-haired, of course, and very lightly tattooed. She wore little except the typical grass skirt, called the rami, made of pandora or coconut leaves carefully interwoven. She was barefooted, and I think I liked her very much, because she had no ring through her nose. It was very fashionable among the Melanesian ladies to wear rings of wild boar ivory through their nostrils, but this little one had none and the natural beauty of the shape of her face was unmarred. What is your name? Mahiati? I couldn't think what to do with her. I took another sharp look at her breasts and made the decision. She comes with us. Well, ski-jump breasts, I mean, what else could you do? Honestly, it's disgusting, all of it. And I don't know what to say about the cultural bias and the objectification and the misogyny and the whole damn lot of it. She does go home with him, and naturally he sleeps with her, but not without a little racial guilt, because his father had told him, My boy, always remember a man who has anything to do with a native woman stinks in the nostrils of a decent white man. Right, whatever. Flynn is at pains to say that he thinks people of every color are shaggable, but I don't really think that that is a good enough excuse for reproducing this bullshit. All of this disgusting behaviour is compounded by the fact that Mahiti is extremely young and this is what Flynn says later on in page 71. Mahiti was little and probably young though they had no conception of age there but she was very much a woman all the same. Really they had no conception of age at all Errol. I doubt that very much. Right, so by page 71 we've learned he enforced exceptionally violent colonial justice without a qualm and had sex with underage poppin' girls. I don't think the Irish censors hated the racism as much as I do but the sex was surely enough to ban it. Now you can imagine my feelings. I'm only on page 71 of a 437 page book. I had a lot of reading to go and I was dreading it. I plowed on to learn that Flynn later tried to make his fortune selling poppin' men into slavery in the gold mines. Fuck it, at this point I was despairing, especially because he acknowledged that he was a crook, but it was all a bit of a lark. The way he tells it, it was all an adventure. And he knew it was not very nice, but what the hell, you only live once. None of this is as funny as he thinks it is, except for one anecdote he tells about himself, the treatment he endured for gonorrhea and I'll read this out from page 95. Back in caving, I caught a nail in the hoof, Australian for gonorrhea, or black pox as they also called it thereabouts, and I got a virulent form of the disease. At first I thought it had something to do with my malaria, which was a recurrent malady of mine. I went to a doctor and he told me what I had. He gave me probably what could be the worst treatment a man could get, a series of applications of Permanganate of potash injected into the urethra. When my friends learnt what I had, I became a sort of hero, but I was terrified. In juvenile misjudgment, I thought I would get rid of it quicker by doubling the dose. That was almost fatal, for I nearly burned out my bladder. I had to enter a hospital and I lay there sick and suffering. What a fucking nightmare. Cross your legs and hope to die. Oh my God. I do feel a tiny bit sorry for him. But I also laughed when he doubled the dose. What a mentalist! Interestingly, later on in life, his health was completely fucked. He was not drafted in World War Two because he had malaria, he still had VD, and the effects of hard living really meant he was physically unfit. There's also an Irish sidebar to his World War II career, or rather lack of it, because he wrote to the head of the CIA suggesting he be sent to Ireland on a diplomatic mission. According to himself, a famous movie star in uniform could charm the pants off the indiscreet Irish and somehow this would end Irish neutrality. Obviously, he knew nothing about politics in Ireland because his charm would have been useless since women had shag all political power. Or maybe he was planning to snog de Valera or even Frank Aiken. He did brag about his contacts in Ireland especially through his father, but his father lived in Belfast, not Dublin. He may just have failed to notice the whole border thing. This crackpot scheme, by the way, was not in the memoir. It appeared in government archives later, but it would have fitted right in, to be honest. It's just as mental as the rest of the stuff he tells us. Anyway, back to pre-World War II, pre-famous Errol in Papua New Guinea. Like everything in this book, I genuinely didn't know whether to believe him or not. On the one hand, you have the slavery and the exploitation, and then you've got outraged husbands, hot babes, and dreamy days on boats. It's all pretty confusing. Whether true or false, this part of the memoir reveals Flynn as abysmally immoral. In the introduction to my 2002 edition, Geoffrey Myers says this memoir is mythomaniacal, that is, written by an invertebrate liar. If Flynn made this colonial shit up, he was horrible. But if he did this stuff, he was even worse. Now, you may have gathered from what I've read out so far that this is not beautifully written. It's corny and hackneyed and stuffed with cod psychology, where Flynn tries to wax lyrical about the meaning of life. It's not totally unbearable to read, because it's fluently written, and there is so much going on that it carries you with it. The Hollywood sections are gossipy and fun, if you enjoy learning about the bad behaviour of film stars. And after wading through the odious mess that was the poppin' section, it's a positive relief.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Here is the peak behind the Hollywood curtain that you really want. How Bett Davis hit him so hard in a scene he fell over. His fractious relationship and later marriage with Lily Damita get a lot of attention. It all sounds completely insane but normal levels of drama can't be expected when everyone is drunk or high. I've no doubt this debauchery was deeply offensive to the censors even if it's not really explicit. I noticed when I was reading around this book actually that journalists and reviewers make it sound deliciously scandalous. But the sad truth is the incidents in this memoir sound much better when related by anyone other than himself and sometimes they were probably too oblique for me. According to the introduction, he revealed Lily Demita's shocking behaviour in a lesbian nightclub, but I missed that entirely. Was the description too coded, or was I too bored to notice it? It's hard to say, really. The middle section is an endless parade of glittering parties and famous people, told by a facile, glib and alarmingly self-absorbed narrator. Tis no wonder I nodded off. All the fun and frolics, though, undoubtedly concealed ugliness around addiction, violence and cruelty. That couldn't be held at bay forever. And the final section of the book opens with Errol Flynn's greatest personal and professional crisis, his trial for rape in 1943. Before we get into this, I'm going to say it. I think he was guilty as fuck. Not just because he famously said, I like my whiskey old and my women young, though that's awful because whiskey is considered aged after 12 years. No, he was guilty because he told us he shagged a little girl in New Guinea and because he died in the company of a 17-year-old Beverly de Avaland, who he first slept with when she was 15. She later said that he raped her at that point. She doesn't appear in the memoir at all, because it would kind of undermine his image as misunderstood if his penchant for underage girls was shown to be a long-term thing. So yes, he did have sex with girls under the age of consent, and I think he was guilty of raping Betty Hanson and Peggy Satterley. Flynn more or less admits he had sex with them. His real problem with the charge is that people will think he needs to coerce anyone to have sex. He worries that people will not distinguish between statutory rape and rape rape. I'm not going to read out a lot of this here because it's gross, but here is a tiny sample from page 333. I might have been as guilty as hell, under the law that is, but in the world of day-to-day common sense, where the ebb and flow of existence can't always be measured to the dotted I and the cross T of living, Everybody knew that the girls had asked for it, whether or not I had my wicked ways with them. Ugh, what a gobshite. Technically guilty, but not actually guilty. Flynn's problem is he thinks he's fucking irresistible, an icon of sexual attraction, or as he calls himself, a phallic symbol. The only genuine laugh I had out of this book was trying to imagine Flynn as a phallic symbol. You'd almost feel sorry for him with his rampant ego if he wasn't also a world-class shit. And on page 335, he gave further evidence of self-aggrandisement so extreme it boggles the mind. The people had vindicated me. There was applause for the verdict and the crowds thronged into the theatres to see my pictures and get a double laugh. To laugh at the film fair and to enjoy seeing the man who gave them so much entertainment over and beyond the call of picture-making. A new legend was born, and new terms went into the national idiom. A GI, or a marine, or sailor went out at night sparking, and the next day he reported to his cronies, who asked him how he made out. And the fella said, with a sly grin, I'm in like Flynn. Well, I'm never saying in like Flynn ever again. Thanks very much. Talk about a disgusting piece of gloating. People do argue over whether the saying originated with Flynn's rape case but in had provable sexual connotations in the 40s so it seems lightly. Some of the sexual meaning has been lost today it can now just mean lucky in a sly mischievous sense. Still it shows you so clearly the cultural sympathy extended to men accused of sex crimes. No wonder he didn't get convicted And on that theme, I do have a bone to pick with the cover, which reproduces a quote from The Guardian, a major autobiography in the tradition of Cellini, Casanova and Frank Harris. Perhaps it's not the book to leave alone in the house with your daughter, but Flynn was not the man to leave in the house with your daughter. Right, can we as a culture retire this sort of bullshit? Laughing away predatory creeps is not funny for the daughters involved, And Flynn was not just a rogue. He was a self-confessed rapist. This book would still sell if the strapline was Flynn was a slave trader and rapist. So let's at least be honest about him. And if it's gory details you want, mention his random outback job deballing rams with his teeth. There's no shortage of weird shit to sell this book with. So stop dismissing sexual offences. Also, I have read Frank Harris's memoir, and had he been alive, he would have been rightfully offended to be compared to this trash. By the time I got to the end of this book, I was pretty exhausted. My temper didn't improve when all that colonial stuff at the beginning of his life returned in another form at the end. He bought an estate in Jamaica where he lived as Lord of the Manor on relatively little money. There was a nasty echo of his youth here because he had a man of colour again, a local, to do the hard work while he lazed around in the sun. This is the almost last paragraph, and I think you need to hear the levels of privilege, colonialism and fantasy that he was living in. Not far away is the small house of my caretaker. He oversees the farmhands, who grow the palms and pick the citrus and carry down the limes and lemons and breadfruit. All around me is the frangipani with its sweet smell of jungle, erasing for me what lies beyond in the great cities. There is a carefully groomed yard around this new house. Tall coconut stalks with their monstrous yet beautiful spiderweb branch design shade me from the view of screwballs, beatniks, and other forms of predators. Yikes. You notice he's the prey, even though his own behavior around girls was definitely predatory. Pretty disgusting. Also I can't help wondering if he went looking for girls in Jamaica too in a place where a famous white man with a lot of money could get away with things quite easily. So I've been extremely but justifiably harsh on Flynn. I would like to say though that I have some sympathy for him because his accountant stole all his money and that genuinely sucked. Also he did work in a Hollywood studio system that exploited its stars, that manipulated their public image without regard for their opinions. He was trapped by his action hero image, which he did feel when he desperately wanted to expand his acting range. But the studios also protected him from his own misbehaviour. One explanation for the Flynn rape trial is that corrupt police officers wanted to squeeze the payoff system for more money. Unfortunately, All that shows is that Flynn and the big stars got away with so much more. You could read Flynn as a victim of an abusive film industry, and that was the line his own father took. After his son's death, he wrote for Australian Women's Weekly under the headline More Sinned Against Than Sinning. One of the sadder, more human parts of My Wicked Wicked Ways is how Flynn was always thinking about or mentally talking to his absent, distant father. Looking for his approval and affection. Errol was broken long before he got caught up in Hollywood's studio system. But enough of trying to judge Errol Flynn as a moral person based on this grotesquely narcissistic memoir. I feel I'm being drawn in by his own throwaway comments that pose as serious attempts to explore his own psychology, and I don't like it. He's manipulating me with this particular format. So it's time to forget all of that and play censorship bingo to bring some reality to bear on this extended fantasy. And I start, as usual, with breasts. Well, yeah, obviously. Ski-jump type breasts? Did he rate all breasts according to their resemblance to geographical features? I don't know. I don't want to know. But yes, there are lots of breasts. Bestiality. No, he never went that far. Or he never admitted he went that far. Sex work. Yes, definitely. I didn't tell you about the mad interlude with an opium-smoking sex worker who swindled him of all his money. Because he thinks with his dick. So yeah, tick that box. Racism. Oh God, so, so, so much racism. Drugs. Yes, there are drugs. Morphine is taken recreationally. And apparently he put cocaine on the tip of his penis to improve sensation. But I didn't find that in the memoir. Maybe that's showbiz gossip or urban legend. He is the sort of eejit who try anything, so pretty believable. Politics. Weirdly, yes. He was briefly mixed up in the Spanish Civil War, on the side of the lefties, and he had pro-Castro tendencies. The politics side of the memoir is pretty low-key, but it still earns a tick, I think. Swearing. Sadly, none at all. It's really the most obviously fake thing about it. As an Australian, he must have known how to swear, and all his laddish adventures are just missing the spice of foul language. So I can't tick that one, unfortunately. Infidelity. Yes, obviously, he sleeps with people other than whatever woman he was married to at the time. Crime. Well, take your pick. There's theft, attempted murder, murder, rape, all that colonial violence, which is technically legal, but not legal, really. Yes. Much crime. Genitalia. No, it's very coy around actual sex acts. I didn't spot any references to genitalia but I did get a bit bored in the middle so maybe I missed them. Abortion. No, didn't spot any of that strangely enough. Orgies. No, it's not that debauched unfortunately. The sex is described with Flynn playing a starring role. I don't think multiple partners at the same time would suit that kind of narcissism. Sexual assault. Yes, when he spent time in an English boarding school, some of his classmates were assaulted by a teacher. He did avoid the man's clutches, but only just. And then, of course, there's all the sexual assault that he probably perpetrated. So big fat tick on that one. Extramarital pregnancy. I didn't see anything that would bring the mood of light-hearted carelessness down. The unfortunate, inconvenient results of sex don't get a lot of attention. I mean, even his own VD is played for laughs. Masturbation. No, of course not. I mean, he had no time for wanking because he was always shagging beautiful babes. Sex toys. Yes, at last I get to tick this box. He's in bed with a Russian princess, because duh, and she beats his arse with a wire hairbrush so hard that he bleeds. Unbelievable. I hardly ever get to tick this box. It's quite exciting. Feminism. No, this feels unbelievably old-fashioned in gender terms. Divorce. Well, yeah, I mean, he was married three times. Contraception. No, once again, no bothersome sexual details. Menstruation. God, no. I'd say he wouldn't even say the word. Blasphemy. I don't think so. He does say he has no faith, But that doesn't seem heretical enough for an Irish censor. Deep faith in anything non-Catholic would be much worse than godless. Oral sex. Yes, yes there is oral sex. It's on page 252. It's hilarious and it's so funny I'm going to read it out to you right now. She started to undress, singing an enchanting little Mexican song at the same time. In the dim light she was a vision of beauty. She fell on her knees beside the bed. For a while we were much engaged. Then her eyes moved. She looked upward at my dresser and let out a little gasp. There stood the hacked up figurine of my Madonna and Child from Spain. She stopped what she was doing. I glanced at her, then at the little memento. She prayed to the headless Madonna and Child to forgive her for what she was doing. I watched fascinated as she said a couple of Ave Maria's telling some invisible beads. Having absolved herself, a smile opened on her momentarily spiritually clothed face and she again took up the subject of Flynn. I mean, really? That is so ridiculous. The subject of Flynn, indeed. Right, we're definitely taking that one. Graphic violence? Uh, no, not at all. Queer content? And yes, I can tick this one too. I may have missed Lily Demita and the Lesbian Nightclub, but when Flynn visits Harlem, he's having a great time until he realises he's not feeling up a biological woman. So yes to queer content. And if I count it all up, remarkably, My Wicked Wicked Ways gets 12 out of 25. That's extremely dirty by the standards of the books I've read so far. Errol Flynn really was a dog. Now, I can't recommend you read it. It's too long and racist to be worth it. But it has always sold well in Britain and America, so the appetite for his insider gossip is still strong. The censors were probably scared that Flynn's fame would drive sales in Ireland too, and they hated popular books like this, so they had to ban it. Next episode, I'll be reading Laura a book written by Alan Shatter, a well-known Irish politician. Published in 1989, it was the subject of the last and possibly the silliest spasm of censorship in Ireland in 2013. Yes, 2013. Eight fucking years ago. My edition says it's the best-selling novel about adoption, which makes it alarmingly topical. But what, in the name of Christ, could be wrong with a book about adoption in 2013? Just thinking about it, I'm quite scared I'm living in the maddest country in the world. Join me next time as I journey into the historic undergrowth of 2013. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.